Well, many of you know my daughter, Violet. She's about to turn two, and all she wants for her birthday is books. She loves to read. And that got me started thinking about how when I was a child, I used to love to read so many stories as well. I remember the days in elementary school when we'd get to go to the library and pick new books. And the ones I was always going for was Clifford the Big Red Dog, anything from Dr. Seuss. Uh, but one of my favorites was a book series called Amelia Bedelia. Some of you may remember her. Um, if, if you've never heard this book, basically she's a maid who's always left with a list of chores and tasks she needs to complete. And they're very clear, simple tasks, but somehow she always seems to mess up. I remember in one book, uh, she was told to dust the furniture. Now we all know this means to take the dust off of the furniture, but she spent the entire day pouring dust onto everything in the house. And then the Thanksgiving book, she was told to dress the turkey. Well, she spent her entire day sewing a dress, putting makeup on the turkey, and even a necklace. She was always misunderstanding. And even one of my favorite books was she was playing a game of baseball and someone told her, Amelia, the runner on first is going to steal second. So she called the cops and reported a theft. And I always thought it was so comical. How could she misunderstand? It was because she didn't slow down to understand the terminology and the context in which it was used that she came to terrible conclusions and ended up looking like a fool. Well, this morning we come to a passage in James chapter 2 where many have become the Amelia Bedelias of Christianity. Because they were not careful to understand the terminology that James uses and the context in which he wrote it, they came to terribly wrong theological conclusions and looked foolish because of it. Well, this problem generally stems from the fact that it seems that Paul and James have two opposing ideas. We'll see that James will clearly state faith without works is dead, while Paul says we're saved by faith, not by works. And once again, James says a person is justified by works and not faith alone, while Paul would say we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works. And so we come to an apparent contradiction in Scripture However, when we understand what each of them mean in context, we see that they're not opposing one another, but that they're dealing with the same issue, the issue of true saving faith. They're just dealing with it from different perspectives. So before we jump into our text this morning, I want us to be careful to understand a few of these words here. We'll see uh, James speak a lot of faith. And when he does that, he'll be speaking of a dead faith and a living faith. And a lot of times in this passage, when he says faith, he's talking about what one proclaims to be true, what they profess they believe. And when we come to works, James is talking about obedience to the gospel, obedience to scripture. And then justified, it's easiest to think of proven to be a true believer. 
So when James will say things like faith without works is dead and that we're justified by works, we need to understand that he's saying that it is the evidence of the Spirit's work in one's life that validates or proves them to be a true believer and to have a true faith. So look with me as we read the passage, James chapter 2, verse 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Go with me in prayer. God, we acknowledge that we are coming to a passage that is sometimes difficult to understand. And so, God, we come and we ask for your mercy and for your grace. God, that you would keep me from error, that you would allow me to explain this text to the people clearly and accurately, and that I would do it for your glory. God, I pray for the people here today that as they hear it, that you would give them grace to hear faithfully. Lord, let them see what you are trying to reveal to us in your scripture today. Let them see the truth that you have given us. But God, even if I explain this text better than anyone's ever done in the history of the world, it makes no difference if your spirit is not active today. God, please be, please be active among us. Please let your spirit open our eyes to this text. Let it, um, God, let us believe it in our minds and in our hearts. Give us the grace to trust you more and more. Amen. Beginning in verse 14 through 19, we see our first observation, which is that James gives us a warning of false faith. James warns us of a false faith. In verse 14, he asks the question, 
What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Well, James believes the answer is clearly no. A faith will never save. And he gives an example in the following verses of a common form of a false faith. Follow along in verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Well, here we're met with someone who correctly sees the needs of others. They correctly see that the scriptures command them to care for those in need. Yet they never do anything in action. They simply say the words, be warm and filled. But then they walk on past, leaving the person still in their need. Well, it's obvious that this person has done no true good. And so we see very clearly that our actions reveal a lot to us about how we view God. Our works or our lack thereof reveal the true nature of our faith. One who has a true faith will always seek to have active obedience to God, while the one who has a false faith will not see the connection between what they profess to believe and how they actually live their lives. Very practically, for us as Christians, this means that we must be eager to do good in the world. We cannot be indifferent on certain issues. If Scripture tells us that life begins at conception and that we're made in God's image and every life has value, we can't be indifferent on abortion. If Scripture tells us that marriage is between a man and a woman and that it clearly displays Christ and His love for the church, we cannot be indifferent on homosexual marriage. When Scripture over and over again tells us to evangelize and disciple, we can't leave that work to the church. We have to see that it is our responsibility to go out and tell the good news. There has to be a direct correlation between what we say we believe and how we live. We can't simply tell the person to be warm and filled and leave them cold and hungry. This is not showing Christ-like love to people. Next, in verses 18 and 19, James continues with his illustration. In verse 18, he says, But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And so James is already expecting someone to make the argument. Well, your faith might look different than mine. That doesn't mean it's any less valid. You know, you do yours, I'll do mine. Let's agree to disagree. And James doesn't entertain that for a moment. He says, no, we can't have a faith that proclaims to trust Christ but doesn't actually live it out. Look at verse 19. He says, you believe that God is one and you do well. So he's affirming this person's correct biblical and doctrinal understanding. 
And that's great. We all need to know with clarity who the God of the Bible is. We must seek to understand God more fully. But look what he says next. He says, even the demons believe, and they shudder. Remember in Mark chapter 1, a demon says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And in Mark 5, we have, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? And what about when Satan himself quotes Scripture to tempt Jesus? Surely we would never say that simply because they had a correct understanding of who Christ is, that they therefore have a true saving faith. It would be absurd to say that demons and Satan have a saving faith. Yet how many times have countless souls made this mistake? Theology is a wonderful thing, and there's so much joy to be had in learning about God. But if you're learning only for the sake of having knowledge, and you're counting on that knowledge to be what gets you your access into heaven and your approval from God, then know that you have a worthless faith. Don't be so foolish to think that because you go to seminary, or you teach at a Christian school, or you've grown up in church your entire life, or you can recite the catechism that you're saved. I fear that there have been many who upon dying have found themselves in hell only to realize that their faith was in John Calvin, not Jesus Christ. So I ask you, are you trusting in a false faith? The simplest illustration I can think of to show that faith and works are inseparable is that of a $100 bill. Imagine I pulled out a $100 bill and I tore it right down the middle. I handed half to you and I gave half to you. Do you have $50? No. You could take it to the bank and you could try to explain to them that you have half of a $100 bill but it'll do you no good. They'll say, this is worthless. It has no value at all. You must have both parts together for it to have any value. So to say you trust Christ while you live in a way opposite of that is to have a worthless faith. Next in verses 20 through 25, James gives us a biblical display of a true faith. We see the biblical display of true faith. In verse 20, he asks us, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith without works is useless? And in the following verses, he's about to go to the Old Testament to give two examples which prove his point. But before we go any further, I want us to stop and realize what he's just done. In attempting to prove his beliefs, he has not said, this is what I think, but he said, do you want to be shown? And he's going to go to the Scriptures. He's telling us that the Scriptures are the authority on what he believes to be true. That might not sound very insightful that we need to turn to the Bible when we explain what we believe, but trust me, it is. 
whenever we're dealing with unbelievers or friends or family or whoever it may be, and we're discussing things that are found in the Word of God, we need to open the Bible to them and say, let me show you. Let the Scriptures be the authority, not yourself. So let's look as James shows us from the authority of God that faith without works is useless. In verse 21, we come to an example of Abraham. We read, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he, was offered up, when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? And this is a reference to Genesis 22. Then continuing on, we read, You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. And that quote there is from Genesis 15. And so in Genesis 15, we see Abraham believing God, proclaiming to believe God, his faith. And in Genesis 22, we have Abraham offering his son Isaac in obedience to God, which is his works. Well, one question we have to answer is, what does James mean when he says that his faith was completed by his works? First off, we need to make sure that we understand James does not mean Abraham wasn't saved until he offered Isaac. He is not saying that it was until he did a certain amount of works that he was saved. But what he is saying is that we find Abraham's profession of faith being made evident by his actions. So how do we know with any certainty that Abraham had a true saving faith? Because of the irrefutable evidence that he was willing to offer his son in obedience. Look at verse 24. James says, you see, I've just shown you. A person is justified by works and not by faith alone. If that wasn't biblical evidence enough, though, he goes on to cite another Old Testament. He turns to Rahab. And in verse 25, we read, In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Well, this account of Rahab happens in the second chapter of Joshua when Joshua sends spies into the city and they come to the house of Rahab. And in chapter 2, verse 9 and 11 of Joshua, Rahab says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So here we have Rahab's proclamation of faith. She says that she trusts that God is the God of Israel, the only true God. She affirms His power, She's heard of the Exodus and believes the account of it. 
that God delivered His people out of slavery by His own mercy. She affirms that He's the only true God. She affirms He's the creator and sustainer of all the world and universe. She affirms many biblical truths to the spies. But once again, how can we know with any certainty that she wasn't just saying these things? How do we know that she didn't have a false faith James warned us of? It's because of her works that were active along with her faith. She acted in obedience by hiding the spies and then also sending the king and his messengers in another way. She protected the men of God. So this is why James says, you see, Rahab was justified and proven to be a true believer by her acts of obedience and not by faith alone. Well, if you're like me and you read through this passage, you may initially ask, why Rahab? That's a random example to quote. I can understand why he would turn to Abraham. He's the father figure of faith. Father Abraham. Children sing about it. Of course we're going to turn to Abraham when we're looking at an example of faith, but why Rahab? Why not someone else? And I think what James is trying to do here is using Abraham to illustrate that faith by works, faith and works active along together, has always been biblically biblically true. I'm sorry. And with Rahab, he's showing that it works this way for all people. Going all the way back to Abraham, it was his faith and works active along together. But it doesn't just work that way for the patriarch of Israel. It works that way for the prostitute. So for us, that means that no one is excluded from the biblical teaching that we must have have works active along with our faith. Chad read through Hebrews 11 earlier. And as I skim back through it real quickly, listen for how each person was active in their faith. By faith, Abel offered an acceptable sacrifice. By faith, Noah, in fear, constructed an ark. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go from his homeland. By faith, Abraham offered Isaac. By faith, Isaac invoked blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Moses was hidden by his parents because they were not afraid of the king but instead feared God. By faith, Moses chose to be mistreated along with his people, rather to enjoy the pleasures of sin. By faith, Rahab did not perish along with those who were disobedient. Why? Because she acted faithfully. Earlier I asked you if you were trusting in a false faith. And at this point, I ask you, do you have any evidence of a true faith in your life? Well, certainly there's going to be varying degrees of evidence in each person's life. We don't need to compare ourselves to one another so much. Instead, we need to turn to the Bible and see if in Scripture there's any evidence of a life of faith 
You need to be able to say, look, here I see it. And then here on this page, I see the Spirit working in my life. And even on this page here, it's more than it was last year. It still might not be a lot, but I see more and more obedience in my life. You need to be able to turn to the Bible and have evidence of a true faith. If you have evidence of that, then praise God for it. That you can know with certainty that you are saved and that He's working in your life. However, if when you inspect your life and you see no shred of evidence that you're living in the way the Bible prescribes, then I would ask you to seriously question whether or not you have a saving faith. Lastly, in verse 26, James calls us to a living faith. He says, For as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And I think we all get the point by now, right? He has one point. Faith and works are inseparable. But you may be thinking to yourself, well, I don't want to have a dead faith. I want a living faith. And so to have a living faith, I must start adding more works to my life. I must start doing more. I must add all of these works. But friends, to come to that conclusion is to misunderstand James's point entirely. Amen. To think that we must do more if we want to be saved is to become the Amelia Bedelias of Christianity. Surely James has taught us throughout this entire passage that a true faith will be evidenced by works. But that is entirely different than saying that works will create a saving faith. Imagine there's a guy who goes out and finds a tree that is rotten, it has no leaves on it. All of the branches are broken and the trunk of it is clearly rotting away. And then he starts stapling apples to it. Just frantically stapling apples until there's hundreds of apples covering this tree. What would you think if you saw this? You'd probably call the cops and say there's a crazy guy stapling apples to trees out here. But then you would also think, how foolish it was. Does this guy really think that if he staples apples to a tree, that the tree is now alive and healthy? It's not a healthy tree at all. And it's just as absurd to think that if we add works to our lives, that that will be what saves us and creates a healthy faith. So James is not calling us to do that. Instead, he's calling us to inspect the health of the tree of our faith. He's calling us to go back to the roots and see what we're truly trusting in. And the Bible clearly teaches that a true faith, one that is saving and producing works naturally, is one that has felt the weight of sin in their own life. 
They've tried to add works. They've tried to do more. They've tried to be a better person, but they have realized that they could never do enough to be accepted by God. Even if they had an eternity of time to do all they could, it still would not be enough to take away their sin and their condemnation before God. God would still say, I am not pleased with you. But then that true faith comes to that realization, and then they also see that the one God is pleased with is His only Son, Jesus Christ. And it's through Jesus Christ coming and living the perfect life that we can't and dying for our sins that He hangs on the cross and takes the wrath of God that we deserved that by His blood we're made clean. We're seen to be alive with Christ now. We're seen to be innocent. And God can now look at us in Christ and say, with you, I'm well pleased. With you, I'm well pleased. A true faith is one that does not look to ourselves, but instead looks only to the cross of Christ and the mercy of God. So if you have Christ as the root of your faith, then you will certainly have the Spirit indwelling you. And we know that the Spirit is always at work in the lives of His people. So if you have fruit of the Spirit evidenced in your life, then you can know with certainty that you have Christ as well. And you do have a faith that it will save you on the last day. It's the works evident in our life that justify or validate our proclamation of faith. And so we must agree when James says that faith without works is dead. Well, in this passage, we've been confronted with some difficult questions. Let Let me remind you of those. We all need to leave here asking, am I trusting in a false faith? Do I have evidence of a true faith? And is my only hope of salvation in Christ? We must answer these questions, people. We must answer them. And so I pray that you would spend time individually wrestling with these questions, but also speaking about these with people in the church, with your friends and family. And that none of us would rest until we know that we have a faith that will save us. Let's pray.